From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. Where is she? The woman who gave you that jewel. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweedin. Today's episode is The Wolves of Isengard, where I make a personal effort to do a two-hour episode just about Legolas flipping onto that goddamn horse. (laughs) But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Today, we're going to dive a bit deeper into the concept of adaptations, which has slowly become the main through line of our coverage of both Jackson's Lord of the Ring films and the Rings of Power streaming series. There's a lot of avenues and lenses to discuss adapting books to screen. For this episode, we're going to use a framework laid out by Rhonda Watts in June 2020. Therein, she broke down adaptations into four categories, the museum adaptation, the artful adaptation, the loose adaptation, and the transformative adaptation. We'll define each in turn and give some examples of each before turning this framework on The Lord of the Rings and other things we talk about in general. Starting with the museum adaptation, it is concerned with preserving every possible detail of the book exactly how it exists in the book, essentially. The author in her article was uh, using Pride and Prejudice adaptations as kind of her through line. And here she uh, references the 1995 television series, though I think Emily Emily has a bone to pick with that. <laughs> I literally like, uh, 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 yeah, I, I can't believe in, in some ways that that was the one that she picked. Like, I can believe it because that is in some ways the seminal thing. But it's also the only one out of, I think, the kind of museum style adaptations of Jane Austen that I would like be the angriest about. Um, I guess we kind of have to, well, I'll just do this. So I've got this like ridiculous, uh, beef with, uh, uh, English writer, screenwriter, Andrew Davis, who you will probably know either for the 95 Pride and Prejudice for his any millions of Austin adaptations that he's done for the BBC or, or ITV here in Britain. He also did the BBC War and Peace. He did, um, the, uh, horrible, awful, uh, I think it was either BBC or Channel 4, Les Mis, uh, and uh, it, it's kind of considered uh, the kind of gold or, I guess, sterling standard of uh, uh, screenwriters who adapt uh, classic novels for, uh, for, for TV and occasionally film. Um, I have a longstanding feud, one-sided parasocial feud with this man, uh, because I think he represents in, in a lot of ways um, all the things that that kind of fuck me off about, uh, like uh, particularly Jane Austen adaptations, which is something that we're going to get into it slightly later uh, in this discussion. But like taking things that are like more about kind of the emotions of the book or like the popular consensus on what the emotions in the book are. So like in the case of Pride and Prejudice, you know, there's this kind of popular narrative that um, Pride and Prejudice is like a representative of this like, you know, cool enemies to lovers trope. Um, and in reality, that that bears no resemblance to to the book. Uh, it bears no resemblance to what Jane Austen wrote in the books. But uh, that's kind of the popular consensus on it. And and Andrew Davis, when he tends to adapt these these various novels, 
tends to take the popular consensus and run with the kind of emotional take on that rather than like what the text actually says. Uh, and the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, which I will say I love, I, I think it is really good. I, I love putting it on. I think it's great. Um, I, it's very good looking. I think it's held up very well for a BBC show from the mid nineties. Um, it has so many kind of little tweaking kind of errors in the adaptation that it does kind of crack me up that this would be kind of the, considered the like standard for the museum adaptations because I think it's one of these weird kind of cases where he gets the like spirit of the book right rather than the letter. And um, I would actually say um, a very different BBC production uh, of a Jane Austen adaptation, which is the 2009 uh, BBC Emma, uh, starting starring Romola Gray as Emma Woodhouse and uh, Johnny Lee Miller as uh, Mr. Knightley, um, is absolutely like the museum adaptation kind of uh, like like height for me. It's it's kind of the perfect one. It keeps both the spirit and the letter of the text, uh, and and I would also say it is vastly superior in quality uh, in terms of not feeling like a stodgy kind of overly powdered uh uh well quite literally museum piece um but yeah no but but this is kind of interesting because i think kind of you know right off the bat uh me being able to you know very characteristically kind of bitch and moan about the museum adaptation style picked here um shows how finicky and kind of fickle museum adaptations are particularly with something as subjective as as a as written text as a book uh because you are never going to when you do these kind of adaptations you're never going to appease 100% of the people who have read the source text 100% of the time and you actually end up i would argue opening yourself up to vastly more criticism than if you do any of the other three uh adaptation types that we're going to talk about uh, here and and kind of in some ways limit yourself and and doom yourselves in some ways. Um, and, you know, my longstanding uh, decades long feud with Andrew Davis, a man who absolutely has no idea who I am, but is nevertheless my mortal enemy, uh, I think kind of stands as a testament to that that trickiness there with this style. Yeah. And I actually struggle to come up with uh, many examples of something that's like a to the letter adaptation. Um, the best I came up with, uh, and these are total dad movies, <laughs> no less, um, The Shawshank Redemption, which mm -hmm. is based on a Stephen King, uh, I think it's a novel, it might be yeah. a shorter story, um, but I think it has a longer name. It's like Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's generally faithfully adapted. Um, no Country for Old Men, the Cormac McCarthy story, which became a Coen Brothers film. That's pretty close. Um, I think the film actually uh, lops off a good chunk of the ending to give it that kind of, you know, Coen-esque kind of like ambiguous ending that they're very fond of. Um, and I think it actually works to the story's betterment. Um, but those were really the only two adaptations I could think of, or at least once I come to my mind, of them trying to really get every letter of the book into their visual adaptation. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess for me, the the kind of, uh, besides BBC Emma, which is one of my favorite TV shows of all time, uh, the, the other kind of gold standard for me in this case is actually The Lord of the Rings Online. Um, and one of the reasons I want to kind of point out the Lord of the Rings online here as a like a as such a flawless kind of museum adaptation is to point out that the format of the adaptation is incredibly important here because the Lord of the Rings online is first and foremost an MMO and it's a massive MMO. It's one of the biggest MMOs like by size, by map size 
Um, I think of any video game currently in existence, it's fucking huge. Um, it would take you, I think someone timed it, it takes you like 23 hours to walk across the whole map to basically go from Ariador to, uh, to Mordor, uh, the very far west of Ariador to the very far east of Mordor. Uh, at the normal sort of game walking speed. It's fucking huge. Um, and the reason that they're able to be so incredibly close to the source material, uh, which is only The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings because they don't have access to the Silmarillion, um, is because it's massive and because there's like 10,000 hours of gameplay in there. Um, and so going with such a closely faithful adaptation of the source material is something that's far, not easier, I would say, but far more possible for the developers and the story writers behind the Lord of the Rings Online because nobody's going into Latro expecting to be able to get through it in 90 minutes or, you know, 10, 30-minute episodes. People are going in it who, to, like me, expect to sink literally thousands of hours into the game. Uh, and and that that frees them up in a lot of ways. And I, and I, and I just want to point that out as, like, I think that's probably one of the few cases when this kind of museum style of adaptation could ever be really fully successful. Yeah, I think it's something that I've come to appreciate, especially within relation to video games, but um, how well the story being told is relevant to the medium in which it's being told in or the mode of its telling. Mm. Um, and I think uh, video games are uh, like a really great spot to look for a museum adaptation. When Once you said Lord of the Rings Online, I'm like, you know what? That Spider-Man PS4 game, mm. that, that was actually a really, really great adaptation. Um, and it was able to bring in every little detail it could because it is a whatever 50 gigabyte game um, <laughs> that is an interactive experience and not being told to you as a straight narrative like a movie or TV show. Mm. But um, the artful adaptations, what we're going to talk about next, and this one is about finding balance between source material and creating something that stands on its own, finding the essential elements of the book and interprets them meaningfully for the audience. The author example in this case is Pride and Prejudice 2005. Mm. And I think this is probably where I would put the Lord of the Rings films, um, even though I think that as a whole, there are parts that hew very close to the text and some that are very, very loose. I think overall, it would probably fall in the artful adaptation category. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And actually, I am very pleased that Pride and Prejudice 2005 is the example here, because I think... This movie in particular, um, certainly over the course of recording this podcast, not this episode, but the podcast as a whole, um, I, I don't change my opinions that quickly, although sometimes I do. Uh, the Joe Wright's 2005 Pride and Prejudice has been really, really helpful for me for in terms of like trying to kind of wrap my head around kind of how I feel about The Lord of the Rings and its relationship to to the book. Um, and which is to say, like, Pride and Prejudice 2005 is like one of my favorite movies of all time. It is also almost totally distinct from the book. Like, I think mostly the characters and locations share names and everything else is kind of vaguely the same, but mostly not really. But it's a beautiful film. It is a beautiful film. It looks great. It's super technically competent. It's well acted. It has a huge amount of heart and soul. Um, and that kind of sort of dreamlike, near to, but not very close to um, style of adaptation is something that Joe Wright in particular excels at um, because he he also did a, a, a really wonderful adaptation of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, which again, 
um and anna Karenina is a fucking massive book it's like a million pages long mm. uh no less um uh you know it, it it's not super close to the actual text of anna Karenina, but it gets the kind of heart and soul of it right and it does something really interesting with it like i think setting it in a theater uh like they like joe wright did uh is uh you know it's a bit high school theatery but it's kind of high school theater stroke of genius and i think it is um a kind of sign of what you can do when you're thinking about why you need to adapt something and what you're really and when you have a really kind of clear purpose for for what you're wanting to get out of your adaptation and of course i think both peter jackson lord of the rings films even if i don't agree with what their purpose in adapting is all of the time i could never say that they don't have a clear purpose like they're obviously adapting this for a reason and getting very good at that and and that's kind of the same thing with the the all of joe wright's work and and um i think if anybody here hasn't uh watched pride and prejudice 2005 i would i would suggest going and watching pride and prejudice um it's on netflix in the uk right now i don't know about anywhere else but but throw it on it's like 90 minutes it's quick it's an easy watch it will not hurt you in any way throw that on and then go watch lord of the rings again the peter jackson lord of the rings and i think you'll see a lot of that kind of those kind of similarities there certainly in the kind of boldness of the the creative choices that they're making yeah, um, I will second that. I watched uh, the Pride and Prejudice film uh, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago. It was on HBO at the time that I did. Um, it's fantastic. Um, I actually am someone who just thinks Kara Knightley is neat. Um, <laughs> so I just really like a lot of stuff that she's in. Um, I know you have thoughts on Matthew McFadden's performance as Mr. Darcy, but that is just <laughs> where I met that actor. And I'm a big secession head, which I believe Emily is as well. Um, it's overall a really great movie. I uh, second that endorsement. It's actually the only intake of Pride and Prejudice I've ever had. Um, so as of right now, it is my definitive take. I pretty much <laughs> like how the Lord of the Rings films were my definitive take uh, until I really dove into the books uh, later on in life. So I do think that the best comic book adaptations, of which there are too many these days, would fall under the artful um, adaptation uh, category. And what I'm thinking specifically of is stuff like uh, Raimi Spider-Man movies, um, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, um, the better parts of uh, Nolan's uh, Dark Knight movies, I would say, fall under here. Um, they understand the core pathos of the character, but instead of really just taking one story and lifting it and adapting it to a visual medium, they often take several stories and kind of mash them together. Um, and that is usually pretty effective because it helps sustain a two to two and a half hour runtime movie. Um, but also, um, it, comics is like, because it is a 60 year old medium and these characters have gone through so much, it's hard to just like lift like one decade out of a specific character and think you can capture that entire character's pathos or history. So that's why you often see them kind of meshing, say, something from the Silver Age that Stan Lee and uh, Jack Kirby wrote with something from the modern age that someone like Brian Michael Bendis would have written. So this this kind of raises a, a question for me, because I know like in context of uh, Star Wars, here we go, uh, we're like 15 minutes in and we've got our first Star Wars reference already, uh, like the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Um, there's kind of a lot of chat about the similarities between the way that the, certainly the last movie panned out and uh, a book from uh, the old EU now known as Legends, which is called Dark Empire, uh, and how uh, it kind of hewed close enough that you you might call it a sort of dark world adaptation. Um, and 
And I guess for me, uh, one of the things that always cracked me up about the EU is that the old EU legends is that like where where Star Wars is very much uh, a, a movie series. And I don't mean that in like the kind of dipshit way of like, obviously, it's a movie series. Like it's a series that would only the story would only work as well as it does in a movie, like because it is a, it's a filmmaker's movie <laughs> a movie guys movie mm-hmm. um and and kind of ha- adding the like novelization component to star wars has always been a bit gimmicky in some ways and like has never been as successful as the movies um not just like financially but like in, in terms of narrative and um, do you think like as as like a comics fan that like it would ever be po- like actually possible uh to do kind of like that museum style adaptation or is it just so far out with like the bounds of reasonableness I don't think it's possible in Hollywood right now. And I say that specifically because I think the best way to approach a museum adaptation of a comic book movie is to do it in animation. Mm. Um, But there's this animation, um, less so now, but historically has been treated as like a second class citizen by Mm -hmm. um, like American pop culture. Um, It's usually relegated for just children or like when anime started to take foot in like the 80s and 90s, um, people just thought they were perverted cartoons (laughs) Um, and like nothing like they didn't realize that this is actually trying to engage with adult themes and stuff. And obviously, you know, a lot of anime is highly sexualized um, and that's, you know, for many reasons. Um, Of course, there is, you know, some misogyny, but also it's a different relationship to sex. Um, culture in Japan than it is here and not something I feel confident talking about on air and sending out to the world. But I don't, I think a big thing is we talked about how, why is the story being told in the medium in which it is being told in? And there's a reason that Cape and Cowell stories are told as picture books Mm. um, because they're meant to be visually engaging and dynamic in a very visual way that you can sometimes recreate, you know, in live action. And I think there are, you know, several um, really good comic book movies. Um, I don't think Nolan has made the best ones, but when he has Bane literally like ripping a plane apart in midair and <laughs> doing it all with stunt work, that's approaching something that can be done, you know, that comics are great at. Mm. Um, but when it's all just kind of like guys on wires and CGI mush um, and the colors are not vibrant, they're muted and dead, um, I feel like that is part of missing the adaptation as mm. much as like, say, missing this characters like Pathos or his tragedy or whatever it might be. So um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's super possible unless you're trying to adapt, you know, maybe something that's a little more street level, like a Batman or a daredevil, Mm. but also you're putting the work into, well, what makes these characters come to life on page? And that's when you invest in the stunt work and choreography and stuff like that. It's actually really funny because I I hadn't thought and literally until you said it there, literally the colors on the page, I just had not thought of that. I mean, obviously I'm not a comic book reader at all. I've been really bad at uh, getting around to, to reading any of them but like the the kind of brightness and the vibrancy of the colors um it is such a crucial component of that and now i'm kind of just like imagining a fantasy world where we could get like a proper like technicolor comic book movie that's like not trying to do the kind of not to dunk on the nolan shit or whatever but like not trying to do like the gritty realism stuff but like mm-hmm. get that shit done in technicolor get some like properly hokey like sound effects and really go for it stylistically like i wonder if that would kind of reshape uh, what a comic book movie could actually be. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I'm ready for like a change or a paradigm shift with that whole shebang of stuff because it's getting bleak and the stories are getting worse and they look uglier, <laughs> uh, which is pretty much the trifecta of bad, bad content, bad content. 
Moving on to loose adaptations, these are stories that essentially keep a few elements or premises of the book it's based on, but then essentially fucks off and does its own thing. The author's example here was Pride and Prejudice 1940, which I haven't seen, but it sure sounds like Emily has. It's awful. It's Laurence Olivier. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know if this is sacrilege or not. I can't remember what the like, which way the kind of pendulum has swung on Laurence Olivier lately. I am not his biggest fan. I, maybe that's controversial now that I've said it. I think it's controversial. I'm not his biggest fan. Uh, I, I think this one is grim. They do it like a comedy. They, they do it like a slapstick comedy. And it's very much kind of like... To its credit, I think it is an important historical document because it's one of these things where you can go back and watch this as a movie and you can almost see the point at which the producers stepped in and started meddling with it and turned it from what had the potential to be like a, you know, a fairly decent adaptation of Pride and Prejudice with some high caliber actors into just a dog shit, like Pagliacci ass fucking uh, comic version, slapstick comedy version of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, and, and, you know, that's kind of cool for the history of cinema because you can see what happens when you let producers have too much power. Uh, everything else about it is grim and awful and, like, a huge waste of however, like, 90 minutes or so of your life. Uh, and it just hurts. Uh, and, yeah, I try to not acknowledge it as, a, as an adaptation at all. I don't like thinking about it. Yeah, to be fair, even though I pull, I have some good examples or good movies for examples for this, I feel like for the most part, people usually put bad adaptations in the loose adaptation category mm. or they would fall in there just because it's like, why aren't you just telling your own story at this point? Because it's either so divorced or just such a bad reading of the source material or just so removed from what the source material might even be about mm. um, that it just like, oh, well, especially now, I think I'm thinking about this with a little bit of 2022 brain. They'll make things adaptations just so they can put a familiar IP or cultural touchstone in the title. Yeah. Um, less so because they're actually, we're trying to adapt this. Um, so yeah, <laughs> there's that. Classic. Uh, the good examples I thought of, um, and by good examples, I mean that not that the examples are good, but the movies, they are good <laughs> and they are, were smart to diverge from the text they were adapting. Um, Dr. Strangelove was, I believe, a serious melodrama about Cold War politics in a similar way. Uh, Starship Troopers, um, the Paul Verhoeven movie, I believe was fully earnest in its fascist uh, <laughs> storytelling on page. But then obviously Verhoeven, who is not a fascist, decided to make it very comical and about fascism. So, you know, good job. Uh, Jurassic Park, you know, which I think is a fairly enjoyable book, but um, Steven Spielberg literally just took, you know, the dinosaur theme park idea and <laughs> ran with it in kind of his own direction. Um, and then I think Miyazaki is someone who's very famously taken stories. Um, and I think Howl's Moving Castle is the best example mm -hmm. where he basically found an anime or a manga rather. Um, he really fell in love with um, the story or at least the visuals or the conceits of the story and then kind of did his own thing. Howl's I think might have been a story, but I know some of his other works were based on mangas that weren't necessarily his own. He's also adapted his own manga to screen. Uh, Nausicaa and the Valley mm -hmm. of the Seven Winds. Um, I believe is based on a manga that he himself wrote. And that one's really interesting because the manga goes off in wildly different direction and goes on for many volumes, whereas Nausicaa is just this really tight story that um, I'm not even sure uh, the manga really gels with in full. So yeah loose adaptations um oh god well now now that you've done ones that are good i feel like a total jackass for bringing this one up but uh the hobbit uh peter jackson's mm -hmm. the hobbit trilogy uh curse series of words that one is uh 
like <laughs> strictly speaking, I guess it does follow the plot of The Hobbit in a generous sense, but it is obviously incredibly loose with with how it handles that and adds a lot and and kind of expands a lot. Uh, and while is I guess broadly recognizable as the Hobbit, and I don't want to say too much because we will eventually have to dig into that fucking trilogy. Uh, like, you know, it, it in some ways it's all, only recognizable as The Hobbit because Peter Jackson himself kind of set the, the created the language, the visual language for The Lord of the Rings as we understand it now. And, and without him having created that and therefore kind of being able to replicate that language, maybe we would not be as friendly to that version of The Hobbit as we are now, which is not to say very friendly at all, but yeah. So there it is. That's my offering here instead of a good adaptation. <laughs> and the final one we'll talk about is the transformative adaptation. This is one where you take the source work and transpose it to a different time period or culture, subculture, um, or just put it in a whole new context from what the original one is. The author's example is Bride and Prejudice, a movie I'm sad to say I haven't seen, but is very popular in Desi or South Asian circles. Um, because it is one that transposes it into uh, a Bollywood film. Uh, some of the other examples, uh, the one that comes to mind immediately is Akira Kurosawa's film. Mm. Um, he very famously has taken Shakespeare plays um, and then adapted them to uh, medieval Japan for his samurai stories. Uh, Throne of Blood is the story of Macbeth. Um, Ran is King Lear. Um, hopping over to Hollywood, some very famous examples are Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The Coen Brothers flick, uh, which is, you know, kind of loosely based on the Odyssey, but told in what the antebellum South or like the Reconstruction South. It's yeah, um, like 1930s it, South. It's so yeah, fucking it's actually good. A bit later. <laughs> it's a bit later than I was making it out there. Um, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet um, would, you know, very famously be included in there as well as, uh, the 10 <laughs> things I hate about you as a taming of the shrew adaptation, oh, which is just one of the best Shakespeare adaptations mm -hmm. ever. Yeah. I love it. It's so good. Um, and yeah, it's thoroughly defined my personality. Um, I'm going to add one to the list that I haven't actually seen, but I have been thinking about constantly since you mentioned it on this very podcast, however many months ago, which is the Lord of the Rings episode of South Park. Uh, something that haunts me uh, and I should actually sit down to watch eventually. <laughs> yeah, um, that's actually a good point. I would say several South Park and like Simpsons episodes would also fall under here. Um, like the Sideshow Bob Kate Fear episode, the mm. one you may know from Sideshow Bob stepping on all those rakes <laughs> um, is very much just Kate Fear, the movie, but obviously with some jokes and twists along the way. The episode Rosebud is a giant citizen cane parody, um, but it's about Mr. Burns' teddy bear instead of um, I'm assuming I can spoil Citizen Kane for everyone, <laughs> even though it wasn't in the spoiler warning, but instead of his sled. Uh, so um, I think parody, satire, and especially like, you know, stuff like South Park, Family Guy, but even going back to like things like Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, and even like 1940s Bugs Bunny cartoons um, would often be, let's take a famous story and let's put, you know, Bugs and Daffy in there to do the hijinks instead. Yeah, this is actually, if I were a smarter person and had thought about this, like what the South Park uh, reference here does to this whole kind of discussion, I, I maybe would have uh, had something more complete to say about this. But but I actually think there's something kind of interesting to be said about the fact that, like, I think some of the most successful, like, transformative adaptations, um, and, and by successful here, I'm, I'm rating it in terms of, like, thematic accuracy not sort of like going point by point and getting every single kind of like dress detail or whatever accurate in terms of the thematic accuracy and really kind of getting understanding truly what the the, the point of a source text is and um, 
there's something to be said about the fact that I think comedies tend to knock it out of the park with that. Um, like, you know, the, the Simpsons was, um, a really brilliant kind of way to, to get, you know, young people into a lot of these kind of more famous stories. Like I certainly remember when I was in, in, in school having, you know, my English teachers use a Simpsons episode to introduce us to like, for example, the Odyssey or, you know, in brief to like Joan of Arc, um, and and there's something there, I think, maybe in the kind of the freedom and the silliness and the kind of uh, lowered kind of inhibitions of the audience that lets you get at the kind of more poignant and important kind of elements of a, of a story in a way that like when you're going for a 100 percent kind of serious adaptation, uh, you maybe don't get the flexibility to do. I don't know. This is, this is such a half-baked thought, but like, but I, I like... I, all I can think about is why the fuck is it that like The Simpsons is so good at doing these adaptations and like why is it that they kind of get it better than everyone else does who's playing it straight? Okay, I'm just going to uh, hypothesize like wildly here, but I think I'm going to circle it back to my previous spiel about animation. Um, it's not just that they're kind of loosely adapting these stories, but I can point to, you know, zoom outs in the Simpsons episodes and it's like, oh, this is something that Orson Welles did very tangibly with camera work in Citizen Kane. But by using the medium of adaptation, they can recreate it. So it's not a huge, like, you know, budget buster or requires a lot of work. Um, but then it also, when I go back and watch Citizen Kane or watch Cape Fear or watch Goodfellas, I'm not just, you know, oh, this reminds me of a Simpsons episode, but it reminds me of Simpsons shot or mise-en-scene. Um, I think animation actually allows you to be very fluid. And then you can also bend and play with, you know, the kind of like film work and uh, whatever you're doing. So I think animation lends itself well because you can really quickly and easily parody shots and camera movements um, in a way that would require a lot of work. And you'd have to actually like build rigs to do it in live animation like Orson Welles did many years ago. Yeah. See, I think this is interesting because I've kind of said for a while now that I think like the only way that anyone should feasibly be like reasonably be allowed to adopt, like for example, the Silmarillion is if they do it using either anime or ballet um, and I and I don't think I've been able to kind of like fully like accurately kind of articulate the reason why I think that is in a way that I'm happy with. But I think I'm kind of now in light of this starting to get there, which is that like I think um, the the kind of uh, the bar for suspension of disbelief is raised um, when you're doing these kind of straight hyper realist uh, like film mm -hmm. adaptations. But when you go in to, to see something, you know, done, you know, and you, when you go sit down to watch anime or when you go to the theater to sit and watch ballet, you're not expecting it to, you, you know, you're not expecting every scene to be delivered at eye level. You know that you're sitting apart from what you're watching. And in the case of anime, like it's not like it's hyper-realistic drawing. So there's already that kind of separation from what's going on, which kind of lets you feel like more things are possible you know, like, you know, why is it that the great Disney movies are done in animation? The the classic Disney movies are done in animation and not live action. It's because there's that kind of room to maneuver for magic and in, in animation uh, and, and in, you know, media where uh, that separation is is kind of inherent to the medium. Uh, and, and, you know, you don't have to work hard to break that or to create that separation between the audience and and the action uh like you would in in a in a in a kind of straight done uh film um and i think like 
now that I'm thinking about what you're saying there with like being able to recreate those shots and, and to do it on kind of a lower budget, like that all kind of is starting to fit in for me as like, you know, shit, maybe everything, every book that has to be adapted, has to be adapted, should just be adapted using animation. Like stop trying to do it in live action. Just have everything do- be done by the fucking Simpsons now. Yeah, I, I uh, it's long since been deleted, but in 2015, I had a long Twitter thread about how any forward Westeros, The Song of Ice and Fire adaptation should just be animation. Nice. Um, but uh, we'll we'll cut it off. Uh, we'll cut that conversation because I could go on forever there. Um, and I mentioned comic book films earlier. And while I think the good ones land in the artful adaptation category, I think there's another type of adaptation we've been seeing a lot lately like the quote-unquote pastiche adaptation. And this isn't just limited to adapting books, but essentially your adaptation is a collage or your movie. It doesn't have to be your adaptation, but your movie or TV show is a collage of other works from any medium. I mentioned Captain America the Winter Soldier as an artful adaptation because it's pulling very specifically from the Winter Soldier arc and the Ultimates 2 arc. But it is also very much adapting Three Days of the Condor, a Robert Redford 70s political thriller, which has pretty much a lot of the same beat as The Winter Soldier. It's a deep American state, you know, spy story. The ending is based around leaking information to the public. Um, In Winter Soldier, it's Twitter. In Three Days of the Condor, it's the New York Times. So it's a great uh, snapshot of how media has changed between the two. Um, And that's also why Robert Redford appears as a character in The Winter Soldier. But I only bring this up to take a shot at so much of our media in 2022, which I am very want to do. Everything now feels like it's a collage or pastiche, and it's kind of just tiresome. Like, you know, I love reading how Book of Boba Fett, a fundamentally awful show, is a mashup of The Searchers and High Noon or some bullshit like that. I think our cultural discourse has gotten just so reductive that if your work is ostensibly calling out to better work, people are like, oh, yeah, this is good. Yes. Okay. You are so right on this. Sorry. My brain just like shot off like a million thoughts at once. Like you are so right on this. Uh, And I think like I think one of the things that I'm struggling to kind of separate in my head and I don't know if there's like a right answer for this, but like, um, you know, I I think there's kind of like reference and then there's pastiche and then there's like whatever the fuck we've got going on right now. Uh, Because like I think you are right. Like I think like everything like nothing is original. Everything is derivative. Um, but there's also like kind of a there there should is and should still be room for like good and interesting or if not good or interesting then funny kind of pastiche work like you know there's uh pd james who's, who's a, this kind of famous uh was this famous uh british mystery author like you know the kind of dime a dozen mystery paperbacks did this novel uh called death comes to pemberley and it's like a sequel to pride and prejudice and it's this mystery it's this great kind of whodunit sort of mystery um and it is not overly self-serious which is great um but it was written in like 2010, I want to say, and then adapted for the BBC, starring Matthew Reese brilliantly as Mr. Darcy uh, and Anna and Mel- Maxwell Martin as uh, Lizzie, Lizzie Darcy then. Uh, and, you know, it was kind of hokey. It was obviously referential because it was picking up on uh, on Pride and Prejudice. Uh, and, and that was kind of fun. And it wasn't overly self-serious. And I think one of like what you're calling out to now, uh, spot on 100% accurately, is this like over like equal parts overly self-serious kind of reference but also this like awareness that the reason that a lot of these shows and and movies are making these references is because they don't actually have anything original or interesting to say and because there's this kind of like deep rooted insecurity in a lot of the kind of 
uh, I, I guess, creatives who are working on the the kind of narrative sides of, of, of these movies and TV shows now. And they have to do that kind of shitty Whedon speak like winking reference. So they can't even fucking commit to the bit because they know that the bit it only has to be there because they can't write anything else. And it gets this like weird kind of slurry of like shit compacting shit compacting shit with like a lack of creative courage the whole way through and instead of having anything interesting to say about like either the story that they're working on or the genre or the like creative landscape as a whole they're just using this kind of like pastiche style reference as a way to cover for their own shortcomings because they like don't feel like they could ever be the next like jane austen or john le Carre or whatever but they also don't want to try uh, and they just want to cut the paycheck and go home and like that i think is what you're getting at there and i'm just like this will take me some time. I will need to go have a couple uh, sleepless nights fretting over this like a total weirdo. But like, I think there has to be that kind of dividing line somewhere, but I don't know where it is or like how to kind of demarcate it, I guess. Um, I eagerly wait for your follow-up report. I know it's going to be great. (laughs) And I guess before we hash out Lord of the Rings, I will say something about Thrones because I think it's also useful because I think it transitioned its adaptation type midway through its run. The first four seasons, he really closely to the first three books. There is a lot of economization, but overall it's hitting almost all the same major plot beats. It's somewhere in between museum and artful adaptations. Um, and it kind of depends on which character they're adapting. And I will say there's a reason these are considered the best seasons of the TV show. Uh, Season five and the much maligned season eight felt very much like loose adaptations. They had some plot points from the last two books and George himself, but otherwise the creators just did their own things with those bullet points. Season six and seven, though, which I love about 75% of, fall into that pastiche adaptation category. They didn't have more books from George specifically, so they went back into the fictional history of A Song of Ice and Fire and some of the previous events prior to Robert's Rebellion and The War of the Five Kings and used that to inspire what they were going to depict in the show. Um, This, like an example, would be in the season seven episode, Spoils of War, the one where Danny, Drogon, and her Dothraki attack the Lannisters. Um, It's the one with Drogon flying through the air and burning up caravans and all that good shit. Um, But that was actually adapting a historical event in Westeros, uh, loosely adapting the Field of Fire, which took place during Aegon's conquest, which kind of set up the Targaryen rule. That is to say, um, just basically, you can see various media transition, you know, from where it started to where it is by the end of its storytelling. So all that laid out, let's talk about where Lord of the Rings, the films fall on this. And I think, as we said earlier, we both kind of fall into the artful adaptation category with The Lord of the Rings. I personally think Fellowship is very close to a museum adaptation. It isn't, but it's pretty much as close as you can get within a three-hour runtime. Um, There isn't some, like, very explicit fat to cut away like there is sometimes in The Two Towers and Return of the King. And I think within the story, you can also say, like, Certain characters like Frodo and Gandalf and maybe even Aragorn um, get closer to the artful or museum adaptations, whereas just like the court at Rohan and Gondor and Denethor are just loose adaptations (laughs) overall. And then we haven't been hesitant to point out the flattening of politics, the mistreatment of Faramir, Eowyn, the lionizations of Galadriel, Gandalf, Aragorn, um, stuff I was, you know, a complete dummy about until a couple months ago myself, so... Um, And then there's stuff like the Ghost Army and the Siege of Helm's Deep, the absence of the Scouring of the Shire. These are all major divergences from the text. But all that said, 
I still think it gets right more than it gets wrong. And ultimately, the films and books still evoke the same emotions out of me. Uh, despair in Moria, hope in Gandalf's return, triumph when Sam defeats Shelob. Both make me ruminate on bonds of fellowship within the story and without, and both fill my heart to tears at various points. It's hard to describe, but the intangibility of this story hits the same for me. That unspoken thrill doesn't really change from book to screen, even if it is different in detail. I've, I've been thinking a lot about what AJ said on the Dead Marshes episode we did with him, about how it's almost impossible to adapt every detail or theme, and that it's a fool's errand to even attempt to do that. Identify a few things you feel you can really speak to, be true to that, and roll with it. I think we see that aesthetically and thematically in Peter Jackson's films. The wonder and terror of this world is captured, especially when he leverages his horror film upbringing. Hope in the face of despair and honoring the bonds we have to each other, I think all of that comes through generally wonderfully. But I don't think accurately adapting The Lord of the Rings is actually the whole thrust of the project. I think part of the goal was also to create the Ur fantasy film at a time when technology had just gotten to the point where giant fantastical castles and evil winged beasts were able to be cromulently put to film. So I do think it's worth noting that the success of the Lord of the Rings films isn't solely contingent on how well it's adapting Tolkien source text. And I mean, just personally speaking, my analysis of these films for nearly 20 years has been independent of the books, even having read them uh, ever so long ago. Okay. All right. So basically I agree. Like basically I agree with everything that you've said. Um, but uh, as part of my inability to control myself and God knows I have no self-discipline on any of these things. And um, I do kind of want to talk about one of my favorite punching bags at the moment. And when this episode comes out, I assume it will still be one of my favorite punching bags because I think <laughs> by going through this thing that I hate, uh, it'll help to kind of be a more enlightening comparison to the Lord of the Rings films. So, uh, here we go. Uh, 2022 Persuasion. Uh, maybe the worst movie I've ever been forced to watch. Uh, and by forced, I mean myself, because, again, I have no self-control. Um, so for those listeners who don't know Jane Austen's Persuasion, um, the story goes something like this. Um, before the start of the narrative, our heroine, Anne Elliot, the daughter of a baronet, falls in love with a young naval captain by the name of Frederick Wentworth. Anne herself is not a particularly forceful personality. And while Wentworth proposes to her and she initially accepts, she's promptly <laughs> persuaded to leave him because he won't have the money or station in life to do justice to her own class background. The novel itself starts seven years later when Wentworth, now Captain Wentworth, is a glittering gem in the crown of the Royal Navy, lately become filthy fucking rich on the back of the Napoleonic Wars and returned to England to do as all men in possession of a great fortune do uh, to horribly reference uh, the famous opening line of Pride and Prejudice there, Jesus, eh? I'm full of embarrassment <laughs> at that one. Uh, anyways, uh, Anne and Wentworth go through a positively torturous will-they-won't-they they, in which Anne, who is still desperately in love with Wentworth, is left in a position of inestimable grief over the fact that she was <laughs> persuaded to give up the greatest joy in her life. She has no idea how Wentworth feels about her and spends most of the novel suspecting that he no longer loves her. Throughout, Anne is badly used by her friends and her family, who are all massive cunts, and she is generally a deeply meek kind of lead protagonist. Lead protagonist. Protagonist. Lord. Uh, <laughs> and we're shown, like, really clearly and repeatedly throughout the novel that Anne is not the kind of person to stand up for herself, particularly in the face of her shithead family. 
In the end, of course, quite literally the last chapter, Anne and Wentworth are reconciled and they do marry. But even then, Anne is insistent that her having been huh, persuaded away from the original engagement seven years prior wasn't the wrong thing because she still feels that she was in the right to do good by her family, no matter how cunty they are. So that's the plot there. Then comes the Netflix adaptation, which, and I promise you I'm not being melodramatic here, literally pillaged the book and left it utterly unrecognizable. Anne is shown to be a modern, strong-willed, sarcastic, forceful personality. Anne Elliot, Jane Austen's Anne Elliot, quite literally rucks up her skirts on screen and pisses against a tree. She drinks red wine, gets fall down drunk, and screams after Wentworth. It's like Bridget Jones and Petticoats, and yes, I understand the irony there, since that should just be Pride and Prejudice, but nevertheless... The story is effectively unrecognizable, whereas the book is full of painful yearning, the quiet suffering of people who are kept in a cage they are, by and large, unaware of, and the suffering at the hands of the cruelty and indifference of the people around them, the movie is loud, rambunctious, laced with gross sarcasm, and too clever by half. For the sake of my blood pressure, I won't talk about it too much more, but it does raise a really important question for me, and one I'm not sure I have an answer to myself, which is, why do we adapt books? What is it that we're hoping to do with adaptations that cannot be otherwise done or felt with the original material? Over the past few weeks, and we are recording this in August, so it will not be the past few weeks by the time this goes out, uh, I've been trying to work my way through every TV or movie Austin adaptation that isn't modernized or musical. So I'm fairly confident in saying that I think your average Austin adaptation is looking to capture the emotionality of the source text. They're all content to be a little looser with the specifics of the novels because Austen's novels have been retroactively boiled down to their genre. They are romances. People who adapt them are interested in capturing the romance. While Austen's novels are, I would argue, equally satire and romance, that romance tends to take the higher priority in adaptations and the satire is generally left by the wayside. Howl's Moving Castle and most of the Miyazaki adaptations are about taking lower fantasy stories and adapting them to add more cutting themes than the original source material had. Diana Wynne-Jones' Howl is a book about youth, personal individual courage, and destiny. Miyazaki's Howl is about pacifism, the horrors of modernity and industry, and the inevitability of life and death. The setting is there to deliver the heavy themes in a slightly softer manner. All of this to say, I don't really think there's one right reason to adapt a source material, though there are certainly wrong ones. But I do think it is worth thinking about the why when something is adapted. And that is, in case the hundred odd hours of this podcast haven't made that clear, especially true for The Lord of the Rings. Another important question that we started to get at here already is, how do we adapt books? Not as in what themes, plot points, and characters make the cut and which do not, but when do we use movies, TVs, video games, and the theater? Now, we don't live in an ideal world, so typically I'd say this choice is actually influenced most prominently by finances in the markets, which is why a lot of these bigger action-y books end up as blockbusters, while the Austins end up as movies and TV movies. But for a minute, let's pretend we're in an ideal world and ponder why we use the various mediums we do and when it is that they're actually most appropriate. Yeah, and I think that kind of circles back to uh, what I was saying about part of the goal of Lord of the Rings was just to put giant epic fantasy on screen. Yeah. Um, and this is something that might be hard to think about if you weren't actually living through um, it as it came up and aware of what films look like or what, what they could do in the 80s and 90s. Um, 
So if you're asking like why adapt Lord of the Rings the way they did in 2001, some of it was, especially for us who were already, you know, semi-adults at that point, like we want to see this stuff. Um, you know, we've read stuff like this. I played video games, you know, 16-bit Final Fantasy games where I have to <laughs> pretend these castles are these ginormous staggering things, but you know, it's what, 20 pixels on your like boxy t <laughs> t microwave television. So like we hadn't, like I... I don't want to pretend I don't have an imagination and I need someone's imagination to show me what these things look like in 3D and live action. But there is sometimes a certain thrill to actually see things you've only read or seen in one mode in another mode. Um, I felt the same way, uh, dorkily as it's going to sound, seeing Spider-Man for the first time like cromulently on screen. Um, and granted, it was obviously a CG character swinging between um, the buildings of New York, but it was still like I had never seen this with mm. one thing you don't have in comic book pictures is gravity and momentum and physics. Um, so actually seeing that it's not just, you know, a guy throwing ropes out of his wrist, but there's actually some kind of like physics and work and momentum um, in the process of going from building to building, swinging along. Um, those are things that are exhilarating. So I think there is like an exhilarating exhilarating sense to just seeing it sometimes even though you that can lead you to a very like banal mode of entertainment where it's just like oh i'd rather see it as a tv show because then i can just watch it and i don't have to think about it or read it or take the time with it hmm. um, but i think where the lord of the rings was in terms of the history of cinema it was very much like someone wanted to bring fantasy to life for the first time in a magnificent way on big screen. And it just kind of made sense for it to be the Lord of the Rings in a way. Um, the age of Arthur stories was kind of long past at this point, And Lord of the Rings was the totem of the fantasy genre. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point as well, because I think like the way that I've been thinking about adaptation so far is like what does the adaptation do to the source material? And I, I think basically what you're saying here, which is I think a far smarter way of thinking about this right now is like, what does the source material do to the adaptation? And like, what can this source material be wielded for in pursuit of like either the adaptation or the medium to which it is being adapted? And like, you're right, like the Lord of the Rings here is being used to like further cinema as a, as a medium rather than being used to further the Lord of the Rings and, and like, like that is a far more constructive way of thinking about these films. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to linger on this point too much, but I'm also thinking it is a way often to introduce a new group of people to a work. Um, it's because of these films that I came to the books and we're doing this podcast. Um, there's a reason that, you know, Game of Thrones is such a brand name. That show brought a lot of people into books that I had just finished reading. Um, and that is, you know, overall forgetting adaptations been a net good in terms of the people I've met and opportunities I've had. So um, sometimes it is just I this story meant a lot to me and I want to share it to a new audience who may not have uh, had a chance to experience it before. So um, a lot of things at play. The last thing I kind of want to mention here is that in 2022, I sometimes grow tired of fans always calling to make everything a TV show instead of a movie, just so you have more time to hit all the plot beats from a given work or to give more space to learn about, say, your favorite MCU hero. I think this falls into that quote unquote, more is better approach to storytelling, that having every bit spelled out is more sound, leaving no place for audience interpretation or fanon. It's why half of these Disney Plus series, both on the Marvel and Star Wars side, feel like they exist to fill out or confirm Wikipedia pages. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, again. So, like, I think there's kind of this thing where, like, um, 
when you're thinking about the medium here and like what the adaptation is doing to the medium um that's kind of not really like a calculation that's being put into like for example the book of whatever boba fett dumbass boba tea um like this is a thing that is being made because it is like cheap easily digestible and like they're going to be able to kind of artificially ramp up disney plus's streaming numbers with it um And it's not taking into consideration the fact that, like, there's a huge difference in terms of narrative pacing between uh, the movies and the TV, like, between the way movies and TV shows work. Like, TV shows can only be so long per episode and fuck to the Duffer Brothers and their stupid ass fucking three hour episodes. I hate that so much. And that should not become the standard. It's awful. And, like, barring that weird Stranger Stranger Things stuff, like, the cutoffs in TV series are more routine than in movies simply because there are more of them, and that necessarily changes the pacing of your story. And I think one of these things that we're running into right now is, they're like, people who are making these TV shows just aren't thinking structurally about what that, like, routine interruption of the story actually does to the overall story. Yeah, no, very much so. Um, I was just thinking about that in relation to Better Call Saul, which is a series that just wrapped as of this recording, and was something that the writers didn't really have an idea how it was going to end. Um, I, I think we've talked about how Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould before on this pod, they just kind of write it as they go. They have some broad strokes, but um, Kim Wexler, played by Ray Seahorn, um, who is the second lead of the show, she was just going to be a throwaway character for the first couple episodes. But she gave such a performance that the TV show adapted around her as like, oh, we have to give her more to do. It's actually the same thing that happened with Aaron Paul in Breaking Bad. Um, TV itself is an adaptable medium, which puts which sets it apart from movies and t- um, books. It's not like here's your final product and this is it. Um, it's more like, oh, we have time. We have some gaps in production where we can go back or we have a season break. And we can say we can jettison this part because no one liked this part of our series, but people really love that guy. Um, so we're going to have a lot more of that guy. So TV itself is something that can be made to be a little more pliable and flexible um, during its creation, um, which is kind of unique as opposed to movies and stuff. Um, and as you can tell from this pod or my work on other stuff I've talked about at length, I'm very interested in mode of adaptation. I'm interested in what choices are made, what that may reflect about the creators or writers take on the original work. I really like discussing what things are cut or how one character might be subbing in for another. And I like discussing all that within the confines of the limits of production in terms of budget and technology. And I think that's also why I'm only interested in discussing the theatrical editions, both there in terms of watching and (laughs) podcasting um i don't need every last bit explained to me i want some of the blanks blank spaces that the movie allows for and that's why i've been eagerly filling you in as like oh the first time i watched this without an extended edition scene to explain what is happening i thought of this um and sometimes i like what i thought of more than what you know (laughs) tolkien thought of or what peter jackson thought of um if i want every last detail i'll kind of just go to the book um, but I will also be kind to you, extended edition sickos. I think the extended <laughs> editions are still far enough off from the original text. Um, and there's so much more in the books that it's still a pretty big gap that I can see why, you know, you wouldn't want to go to the book just to get the extended edition scenes. <laughs>
Today's scene is an homage to everyone's favorite game, the Oregon Trail. We pick up with Gimli, Eowyn, and Aragorn on the caravan to Helm's Deep, with Gimli providing the deepest and most profound lore we get on the Dwarves' All Trilogy. It's true you don't see many Dwarf women. And in fact, they are so alike in voice and appearance <laughs> that they're often mistaken for Dwarf men. It's the beards. And this in turn has given rise to the belief that there are no Dwarf women. And the Dwarfs just spring out of holes in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Which is of course ridiculous. <laughs> Finally, some focus on not just the Dwarf men, but the Dwarf women and the Dwarf children too. Wait, didn't I make this joke last time I did a recap? Anyway, the headline is not Dwarvish gender norms, but the fuck me eyes being exchanged between Aragorn and Eowyn. We cut to nighttime and Aragorn smoking a quick bowl before bed. He's just like me, for real. Also like me, he thinks about girls he likes as he goes to bed, which in Strider's world is Arwen. Her voice seeps in here, ushering Aragorn off to sleep. A grassy transition lands us back in Rivendell, and Aragorn says the same thing I say when I see Liv Tyler in my dreams. <laughs> this is a dream. Then it is a good dream. There's a little bit of flashback mixed with the dream here, which heightens the surreality. Aragorn and Arwen's final moments before the Aragorn Fellowship Tour began, specifically that Aragorn must go with Frodo, and despite him being a total dra drama queen about his destiny, Arwen tells him to just do the fucking thing, or something like that. And then they make out, which satiates me after spending the last few minutes yelling, kiss already, at my television screen. <laughs> now we're back with Aragorn and Eowyn, the latter asking which of his exes gave him his bling. Instead of answering her right away, he daydreams some more, this time about Elrond being a protective dad about his daughter dating. Let her go off to college, is the energy here, instead of dating Aragorn and sticking around this broke-ass town. <laughs> Aragorn then takes that message to Arwen, trying to give back the Evenstar ne necklace gifted to him. Arwen lets him know that authority was given to her to deny the return of the bling. <laughs> oh. After what seems to be several minutes, Aragorn finally tells Eowyn his ex is off to the Undying Lands with what remains of her kin. I imagine this as one of those Simpsons bits where Homer daydreams for like 10 minutes while his family just waits around for him to say something. Okay, but seriously, enough of this emotion bullshit and supposed character work. It's been like 10 minutes since I've seen something die and we got a quota to fill. Sorry, Hama, you are the quota. The wolves of Isengard have arrived, killing Hama and almost taking Gambling too, until Legolas bounds over rock and stone to save the day. A scout! What is it? What do you see? Legolas keeps lookout as Aragorn and Theoden wrangle the Rohirrim. Gimli is a rider too, he claims, as several people help him get a horse. Eowyn too can help, but Theoden has another task for her. You must lead the people to Helm's Deep and make haste. I can fight. No. You must do this for me. Now here comes some of my personally favorite shit, Legolas going sicko mode. After taking out a handful of warg riders, he grabs the undergirdle of Gimli's horse and impossibly launches himself onto the saddle, swinging underneath its neck and landing neatly behind his dwarf pal. 
I want to play just a sample of the crowd reaction I witnessed to Legless getting on the horse like that. We get a pretty fun set piece in my opinion, seeing some horse on warg violence as the two cavalry smash into each other. Gimli keeps up his role of comic relief, smelt testing every creature he kills and giving them a disapproving crinkle of the nose. Theoden acquits himself quite well here, taking out orcs left and right. Aragorn is less good at this shit, getting his shit tangled up with the lead warg rider guy dude. <laughs> Ryder gets stabbed off the warg, but man and wolf go plummeting off the cliffside. Legolas looks frantically for his pal, but the lead warg rider guy dude clues Legolas in on Aragorn's fateful fall. He even took Aragorn's bling to prove it. Good thing the movie just reminded us all about it. A disheartened Legolas and Theoden reassemble the men to continue the march to Helm's Deep. Get the wounded on horses. The wolves of Isengard will return. Leave the dead. Staggering arrival at Helm's Deep, Eowyn and the civilians get there first, giving us our first establishing shots of the ancient fortress. There's some fine statue work here too, as the camera orients us with the castle, laying down some geography for the film's final act. While the familiar mournful Rohan strings come in here, don't miss the little drumbeat behind them, symbolizing both the march to the ancient stronghold and the march to war. I'll play that bit to outro this recap. Theoden and his men arrive not long thereafter, though Eowyn is quick to notice that there are fewer men than before, and fewer Aragorns as well. <laughs> Gimli gives her the deets as Theoden bars the gates to Helm's Deep. The people of Rohan are on their way to Helm's Deep, a 60-ish mile journey west and slightly north from Edoras. Travelogue chapters are a good time to zoom in on some characters, which is what we get here. I'm sure Emily has some really strong opinions <laughs> about the content we're about to get, but I can't say that I really do. It's mostly just serviceable character beats that work well in the context of the film and its pacing, wedging itself in between Frodo's capture in Athelion and the work set piece thereafter. Because when you cast Liv Tyler, you got to use Liv Tyler. And apparently for this production crew, it's using Liv Tyler to talk about Aragorn's doubts and fears. This is kind of worn ground for Aragorn's character, but I do like showing him and Arwen together in this dream set piece. The perfect sheen of Arwen's blemishless face against the scraggly beard and wrinkles on Vigo highlights that they are from two different worlds, and the years have worn on the future king in a way it doesn't show on his queen. Yeah, um, the, uh, the makeup is really good in this. Um, I think Liv Tyler's makeup is like really lovely and kind of dewy, but there's this bit like literally halfway through all of this where uh, 
Aragorn's like fondling Arwen's ear and it gives me the worst anxiety known to mankind because I used to do a lot of like makeup stage makeup with prosthetics and I would not trust that and I can only like feel for whatever prosthetics artist was working on this production watching that happen and just being like if that fucking thing breaks on air I'm gonna have to kill like the lead actor of this because there's no way we're coming out of that normally Oh, God, I thought you were going to about to share like some weird ear kink you had, which I wouldn't shame you, but I literally thought that's where you were going to go with that one. Like some I'm about to Google that, that on Tumblr. Something. <laughs> As mentioned earlier, I do like how the sequence seems to be an equal mix of dream, flashback, and memory. Bits from Rivendell we didn't see in Fellowship of the Ring that allows us to reacquaint ourselves with Hugo Weaving's Elrond. Elrond will have his quote-unquote biggest moment in the film in following scenes, his discussion with Galadriel that acts as this film's intermission. Dropping in him here, opposite Aragorn and Arwen, quickly situates the audience with his whole deal pretty efficiently. Unfortunately for Eowyn, she's used as more of a leaping-off point to get some Arwen scenes up in this bitch. She does get to make some longing looks at Vigo Mortensen, which is everyone's dream, I think, <laughs> but not really sure if it does much for her character. She does have an easy rapport with Gimli, and her and Aragorn get along well too. It's nice to see her laughing and being likable, uh, as opposed to her just crying as we saw her in all her previous scenes. Let's fucking go. Okay, so I'm about to be the most negative Nancy possible, but it's uh, in service of my higher propaganda propaganda point, so let's go. Uh, for starters, I feel really bad for Alison Bechdel because the Bechdel test has literally made every single quote-unquote feminist art critic like 500% dumber. And it's not actually her fault. That's not really the point she was trying to make. But nevertheless, um, this is actually, this film in particular is an insanely funny instance where they've included these two women in a far like more voluminous way than they exist in the source text. But then in their obsession with like Christifying Aragorn, they've utterly deprived both of these women characters of any sort of raison d'etre that is like separate from Aragorn. Aragorn's, or rather, ooh, Freudian slip there. Uh, Eowyn's whole shtick is flattened from someone struggling horrifically under the violent expectations of patriarchy into girl boss down bad, which as an aside, I'm happy to laugh at those jokes, but they really do aggravate me in a way that I recognize makes me a joyless feminist. But seriously, I cannot imagine treating or talking about a man character in the way that people do re-Eowyn, which I find all the more egregious given that her initial plotline is literally entirely about her use and misuse by men and patriarchy. But I digress. Arwen, of course, gets the fucking insane thing of being downgraded politically from the source text to being like a sword-wielding baby-making machine whose biggest choice in life is literally determined based off of the reality that she apparently pops out of sun. Grim. Not just Grim for the 2020s, but Grim for 2003. Not good. All right. Miranda Otto. Adorable. Love her. Think she's great. I can't really rag on her too hard. It's not really her fault, but I have to think of her Eowyn in the same way that I think of Matthew McFadden's Mr. Darcy, in the sense that, like, Matt Mac's Mr. Darcy is, like, a dude named Mr. Darcy and not Jane Austen's Mr. Darcy. This is like very much the same thing for Miranda Otto's Eowyn. I don't really think it's her fault in the same way it's not Matthew McVadden's fault, but these are just two separate characters to me. The other thing that grates here is like the crux of Eowyn's story feels very, very hollowed out. And I don't actually think it's ever more clear in this film in particular than in this specific scene. We're meant to believe so far as I can see it, that women fighting is necessarily a good thing without condition, and therefore Eowyn's exclusion from that is inherently a bad thing. 
We've already been over some of the kind of moral stickiness there, but I think the way that this is set up in the film is also quite weird. So we know that there's a more concrete shield maiden tradition in the film universe than in the book one. Again, we've already trodden this ground, trod this ground before. Um, Eowyn, of course, alludes to this in her conversation with Aragorn, which has the changed line from the book to the movie as the women of this country learned long ago that those without swords may still die upon them, whereas in the books, it's just the people. Uh, so we know it's marginally more plausible in this universe that a woman might become a shield maiden. And Eowyn's angst stems from the fact that she's denied that, uh, evidenced by her brother and her uncle specifically denying her that on screen. But this is actually quite a significant change from the books. In the books, the setup is this. There are harem value war and warriors above all else. If you want to be a person of consequence and worth in Rohir society, you must be a warrior. Women are excluded from being warriors on the basis of their gender, though the Rohirrim have a shield maiden myth to help manufacture consent for the principal organizational value of their society. See, we let women fight. There's no systemic issue here. It's a purely individual one. Huh, where have you heard that one before? Anyways, Eowyn is blocked out of this system and forced to perform the task of caring for her uncle, who fails in his duty of care to her and also to his kingdom. Eowyn does this pretty thanklessly and naturally feels quite bad about it. When she expresses that she thinks it's pretty fucked up that she's the one left to do the low-value work of caring for the king and kingdom while the men get to fuck off and fight and get heralded as heroes and remembered for all history, all the men tell her, effectively, well, hey, hey, don't get too mad about it. There's loads of value staying at home and taking care of the kingdom. Even though it's pretty disingenuous, since literally none of them would do it themselves, which is why Eowyn gets stuck with it. Eowyn then, trapped in despondence, sees going to war as an avenue for two things. First, to win her glory, and effectively to become greater than she could possibly be while trapped in Metaseld. And second and latterly, when she realizes, after killing the Witch King, that this war shit isn't actually going to fix her problems, she sees it as a chance to win a different kind of freedom by, of course, getting herself killed. So Eowyn's gripes in the book are very serious, literally life-threatening, and the prognosis is grim and getting grimmer. In no small part because all of the men, particularly her uncle and brother, pay exactly no attention to her. But the setup in the movie is different. Eowyn's barred from fighting, but it's not articulated in terms of her being basically forgotten along profoundly misogynist lines. It's because the men in her life have committed the horrible sin of caring too much about her and simply thinking too highly of her. Where Theoden in the book straight up forgets that Eowyn exists and has to be reminded by Hama that she can, in fact, be a great leader in Theoden instead, movie Theoden looks to Eowyn without hesitating, very happily treating her as his right-hand man without prompting. Later, when both Eomer and Theoden deny her request to fight, they do so because they're worried for her safety, not because they simply cannot be fucked thinking about her or talking to her. This scene in particular is really a killer for me because after that beautiful shot of Miranda laughing and smiling at Golden Hour, Theoden leans over to Aragorn to say how happy he is to see her smiling again, and this effectively kicks off the smile sweetie plotline of the next two movies, wherein the only thing Theoden says to Eowyn is that she should learn to smile more. And this actually ends up being the resolution to Eowyn's character arc. Her quote-unquote satisfying conclusion is that we see her smiling, which, okay... I do want to take this opportunity to point out that even though it's an undercurrent, the smiling stuff is in the extended editions, not the theatrical editions. That is a good Carry point. On. Yeah. They don't actually ever say it in the thing, but it's all about her happiness and her joy and 
why won't you just be happy? Anyways, I hate it. it, I, it that's where um, the I know your face stuff is like slowly building on that as well. Yep. Oh, that line in particular drives me nuts because it's so good and Bernard Hill delivers it like miraculously. And then I like think about it for more than a second. and I'm like, I hate this and want to die. But that's true of a lot of things in life. <laughs> Anyways, so the question I have to keep asking is, why is Aowen sad? Why is Aowen still sad after her, her uncle is saved? Is it just general wartime sads? Is she sad that she can't fight with a sword? What are the stakes and motivating factors of Aowen's story here? And I don't even think that the fact that these an these questions aren't satisfyingly answered is because of the necessary slimming for going from book to movie, because she gets vastly more screen time in the movies in comparison to the books, and yet the books still manage to present a far more realized narrative than the movies do. Also, and I hate to do this, but I hate the whole politics and the implicit weirdness that is involved with Eowyn's story as her journey to happiness rather than her journey to self-realization, there's something a little weird about the fact that like a woman in wartime might be slightly imperfect and in needing of an attitude change on the basis that she's unhappy. Heaven forbid a woman be unhappy in wartime. As opposed to the book version where Eowyn is just looking, not looking, she's actually actively not looking. Eowyn needs to have a change of view about how she engages with the world around her and also needs to literally physically pick up and get the fuck away from her psychopath family because otherwise she's literally not going to survive she's going to end up killing herself that is a far more compelling narrative than why don't you just do some mindfulness and reframe your thinking this is a very much anti-positivity zone here oh no i, th I think all that's uh, spot on um i think going into our adaptation discussion part of it is i know i know what fran walsh or felipe boyan said like you know adapting aon was an important part of this project and like you said that she has more screen time in this than theoretically she does in the book but it really feels like they wrote the story as it would serve frodo gandalf sam and aragorn and then kind of just cobbled everything else together around it um and i think that's just kind of why aon's always just kind of feels like she's supporting other characters and that her own quote-unquote arc is just kind of whatever you just described it is as <laughs> um and i've been this might be a little bit too online to uh say on a podcast but that hasn't stopped us before <laughs> um you talking about the line where um in the book she talked about you know the people of this country learned to die on the sword um long ago whereas in the movies they change it you know women have learned they can die even if they don't have swords whatever the line is um i think of that tweet or it's a meme and it's two tweets and uh follow-up the first tweet just says women and then the second tweet just says that's enough feminism for today <laughs> and that's basically how i feel like the script was written here they basically inserted the word women into that um aon quote and then thought they did something and then just kind of left it at that and didn't really change anything to like follow up or provide consequence to that uh line change no literally that's exactly it I, I i could not have ever articulated that better myself like that that is what it is it's just like slapping this like a women shit on it and being like that's feminism without any thought for the like ideological implications and i think it's such like you know i, I I'm, I'm a little bit iffy on the idea of like a proactive definition of of like womanhood i like certainly don't think that liberals can handle it in a way that doesn't end up just being like wildly transphobic and regressive but like when they are doing this kind of shit where you can just slap woman over whatever word was previously there and call it a day like what they are really doing is not thinking about what the implications of like being a woman is and actually this kind of solves kind of the slots in a skeleton key for me and a thing that i was 
thinking about a lot uh, earlier, a couple weeks ago, uh, but wasn't able to really work into this, which is like, why is it that J.R. Tolkien, who is like, in no sense of the term, a progressive, like who is an actually, in, in most ways, very regressive, why is it that he manages to write women characters that are vastly more compelling than like, these liberal, ostensibly consciousness-raised women? Uh, like, why is it that they fuck up so badly? And it is because, like, even though Tolkien's definition of womanhood and, like, the kind of roles and responsibilities and social impacts of womanhood uh, is something that is, like, both deeply traditional and also, like, be both deeply harmful, it's also something that is, like, more reflective of reality than whatever the fuck it is that liberal feminists convince themselves womanhood is, which is like apparently pantsuits and, I don't know, lean in, Sheryl Sandberg or whatever. Like, Tolkien's traditional womanhood, uh, ideologically horrific as it is, is more reflective of reality than than the, like, Hillary Clinton girl boss shit. Uh, and so when he writes about it, even if he's not intending to, say, overthrow the gender binary, by virtue of us being people who are capable of thinking... We can see that, like, it is the gender that, like, the the influence of gender that is harming Eowyn. Whereas in this, there's any number of things that could, like, theoretically be what's harming Eowyn. Like, it could just be general bad vibes. She may have a chemical imbalance in her brain that, like, is effectively not, like, her fault, but, like, is something completely internal and has no basis in the external around her. And if she just got, like, dosed up on fucking sertraline or whatever she'd be fine and her plot wouldn't matter. And that is the problem with this, like, not thinking about the consequences of, like, gender and womanhood that goes hand in hand with, like, liberal feminism. And, like, obviously I'm not necessarily in favor, like, I would have hated it more if they'd tried to do a proactive definition of womanhood, which would have inevitably ended up, like, doing some probably pseudo-fascist shit, uh, certainly some rad fatty stuff that I uh, have uh, no truck with, but, like, or not no truck with, I have no interest in, but, like, it is weird that they are getting lapped on the issue of writing good women characters by, again, and I feel like I say this once a podcast, uh, an 80-year-old dead Tory. Well, hard pivot from that. <laughs> this is another prime Gimli comedy hour. And as is my want in the Two Towers episodes, I'm going to kind of defend some of these choices here. I think all of his comedic bits actually serve in one capacity or another. The most memeable thing is the discussion of dwarf women and their beards, which is a hot topic going into Amazon's new show. <laughs> or, and I guess at this point, we've already seen the Amazon's new show. So I'm either applauding them for including dwarf women with beards or lambasting them for not going far enough with their dwarf women beards. Uh, <laughs> slot in whatever you need to there. <laughs> but just in the abstract, I do like Gimli nominally talking about dwarf kingdoms and cultures. So we just get a bit more flavor from that corner of the lordom. But then we get those Hobbit movies that gave me a lot more information about the dwarves. And then I decided I don't need to know this much. And I don't have anything specifically to add on dwarf women and beards. But Emily, um, what do you think or how does this work into Tol uh, Tolkien's Legendarium and all that? Yeah, so this one's kind of fun. Uh, so this is kind of like a, a systemic example of like Tolkien's missing women and that like dwarven women are basically not mentioned at all. I think one of the only ones we actually get is Dees. Uh, and, you know. After The Lord of the Rings was published in nineteen in the late 1940s, uh, late 1950s, rather, uh, you get um, this kind of fan and interpretation uh, that, you know, theoretically dwarf women could have beards. Uh, and that's something that held as it, it, sort of it, its position of like canon ambiguity, where like it was never canonical as in positively affirmed in canon, but it was also ne never 
not canonical, as in positively denied in canon. Uh, and, and so it was fun. Like, it, it was fun. It was cool. It was good. It had a lot of good art. I think it was, like, one of these things where it was kind of an interesting way of, like, talking about, like, different cultures and also women and wh- whatever. All this stuff nobody really gives a shit about. Anyways. It wasn't until November of 2021 when the Nature of Middle-Earth book came out uh, that there was finally positive confirmation in uh, in canon in Tolkien's own words that dwarf women don't have beards. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it's a bullshit call, and I say overturn that, uh, and dwarven women should always have beards. Uh, and it's, it's fun. And if you have time to go look at the art, um, I think you'll go see like some some really great fan artists who have really thought, I think, quite seriously about like what. And I know this sounds it is overthinking. It is overthinking it. But it's also like a fun overthinking it, which is like there are these fan artists who have thought sincerely about like, what does it mean when everybody in a culture has beards? And what does that do for your aesthetics? And they've come up with some really beautiful art for for these dwarven women with their beards. And it is it is enormously refreshing to look at uh, and kind of like a good kind of a like palate cleanser, I guess, midway through your day if you're a bit sick of the world. Uh, so I would highly recommend that. Uh, Gimli also seems to be low-key trying to impress Eowyn here, being all jokey and blustery with her, which where do we stand on shipping Eowyn and Gimli? Do they have a cute ship name? Gimloin? Eomily? That I'm just sounds like Emily. Myself. That really does. That's even worse than it is in writing. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bit with Gimli spurring on his horse actually comes back around, as in the upcoming warg battle, Gimli will quickly, very quickly lose his saddle. Really hammers home how dwarves are not riders, and we only really see him saddled when going to and fro with Legolas. He's the one who goes to blow the horn of Helm Hammerand, after all, while every, everyone else rides out of the keep. Jumping ahead to the warg attack, Gimli gets more comic relief. First, the slapstick of a warg actually coming down on him, and then some olfactory humor as he says the beast stinks, and then he kills an orc, and then he smells the orc to confirm that the orc stinks too. (laughs) It's super relatable. You ever scratch your balls or your butt and see what it smells like after? Anyone? (laughs) Yeah, I, I definitely don't do that either. Uh, It's been a while, but I bring this up just to mention that I love when the movies talk about the smells of Middle-earth. From Galadriel's I smell it in the air, to Gandalf's the air doesn't smell so foul down there. This film tries to bring back some of that sensory imagery uh, from Tolkien wherever it can. Um, The foul smells also speak to the corruption and decay we find Middle-earth that's quickly marching toward its doom, unless our heroes can stop them. So let's talk about the wargs next essentially giant evil wolves. The the word warg comes in from vagar or wagar in Old Norse, meaning wolf. Emily, is there a pronunciation on that you want to give me? Oh, oh no. Uh, Yes, whatever you said was right. I can't pronounce it either, so good. (laughs) Uh, Though we only see them ridden as cavalry in these films, wargs live and hunt in packs of their own as well. They supposedly come from the Misty Mountains and were known to work with the Goblins of the North, something we see in the Hobbit films. Uh, John Ratliff, in his book The History of the Hobbit, postulates that wargs may be creatures corrupted by Morgoth in the Elder Days, but it seems they only really show up in Third Age events as far as we know. Speaking of those Hobbit films, the two trilogies do have distinct designs for wargs. The ones from the Hobbit trilogy are quote-unquote northern wargs and are gray-furred and look more like real-world wolves with accentuated features to look a little more demonic. 
In Lord of the Rings, they have a blunt muzzle and snout with a face resembling a bear or maybe even a rancor more than a wolf. Not sure whether to call this scene Easter eggy or not, but it might be loosely adapting a single throwaway line about wolf riders being abroad uh, during Theoden's retreat to the deep. And then secondly, the lead warg rider guy dude, the one who steals Aragorn's bling, his name is Sharku, which is a reference to the name Saruman goes under during the scouring of the Shire. Uh, yes, I also, sorry, so I, I, I put the, this in and then uh, immediately kind of second guessed myself and, and spent a, an unfortunately long amount of my time today uh, diving through the, the like worst parts of the internet to try and find an answer to this. But I was thinking originally that this was meant to be kind of an oblique reference to the wolf attack on the Fellowship uh, in the books when they are coming climbing back down Karadras uh, after like the, the snow kind of blocks them out. They're attacked by wolves in Aragian. Uh, and Gandalf has a couple weird like uh, lines about it, a, l- a couple little cryptic lines. I thought that was meant to be maybe kind of a reference to this. And then I was like, no, that sounds insane. You're definitely wrong. And so I went and spent some time looking it up. Uh, and there's a chance that uh, it may actually be based off of a, one of the words in a spell is that uh, uh, Gandalf utters, uh, which means like hide or, or falsify. And given that there's a presence of werewolves and the Silmarillion, there's a chance that it could have actually been like werewolves that attacked them. Um, nevertheless, all of this to say, uh, one of the things that is kind of an interesting thematic element all the way through uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, book uh, and the wider legendarium is uh, Tolkien using wolves as bad guys. There's so many different variations on the wolf as an evil thing. And this obviously has, like a, a as you rightly pointed out, like a really long history uh, within uh, Norse mythology uh, and, and even kind of to more common, uh, like more recent contemporary Scandi mythology, like it is these wolves as harbingers of evil or doers of evil is a really common thing. Uh, and and in advance of our discussion about whether or not this whole scene is bullshit, uh, I will say that I think it's actually the fact that they use the wargs is a good and thematically appropriate choice, certainly much better than just straight up orcs. So I have to give it to them. I was just thinking now, uh, going back to our cave troll discussion in Moria, this could also just be them trying to do that scene in The Hobbit where the uh, dwarf company and Gandalf are like harangued by wargs and driven up the trees before the eagles come. Oh, um, obviously, all that isn't in here. But that's just like, oh, we might not ever do Hobbit films. So let's use this opportunity to get the wargs in here as well. God, that is a good point. Uh, and I feel like I got to talk about wargs in A Song of Ice and Fire as it is a related but different concept. Several several characters in the book are skin changers, which in George's world means people who can slip their minds into that of other animals or even humans. Brandon Stark is the most obvious example. Show watchers may also remember Orel from season three, uh, played by Mackenzie Crook of Office UK and Pirates (laughs) of the Caribbean fame. He was shown commanding an eagle that once attacked Jon Snow. While skin changers refer to those who can slip into any animals, Wargs and Westeros are characters who specifically slip into wolves. The show played a little loose with this definition, but it's a clear distinction in the book. Speaking of the books, Bran is not the only warg. All the other Stark children are wargs. Jon, Arya, Rob, Rickon, and presumably Sansa if her wolf wasn't killed right out of the gate. There's no real tie into Lord of the Rings here, but I can bitch about how they cut all the non-Bran kids being wargs, which annoys me a lot. Arya and Jon specifically have a lot of material tied to their warging that gets zero mention in the show. And I actually am now thinking about the fact about how wolves are traditionally 
meant to be evil forces, uh, like Emily just laid out, yet it is very specifically the symbol of the quote-unquote good house in Westeros in Game of Thrones in A Song of Ice and Fire. That is because orgs are dogs and dogs are always good. And that is my smart uh, contribution to this. And if you see a wolf in the wild, you should always go up and pet it. My brother, my captain, my podcast is not liable for any injuries you may receive when petting a wolf. So part of why we talked about adaptations up top is because this whole warg attack is invented whole cloth. The wolf riders, again, are just like maybe a throwaway mention or adaptations from Tolkien's broader legendarium. This scene is a pretty standard dunking ground for critics. Unnecessary action sequence, meaningless fake death, nothing to do with Tolkien's text, etc., and so on. Not only do I not agree, but honestly, I don't know if this is one of my favorite films without this sequence. I think it helps pace the story, gives a jolt of adrenaline during a lot of travelogue storytelling, and serves the characters and story. My one caveat about all of that I'm going to say is I believe the scene is pretty good generally, but I will cede ground that the Aragorn fake death is pretty weak, even then I do find some value. But before I go into a semantic defense, I just want to stress first, this scene looks fucking cool. It has action elements I'd never seen before in the medium of film and is extremely well shot and easy to follow. Let's start with Legolas, cause where else? He's the coolest part of this whole shebang. Him murking a couple dudes with arrows from Hilltop is a fun in and of itself, watching his targets fall from a distance. But that flip onto his horse, Matrix style, is just one of those film moments that will live with me forever. In 2002, audience reactions tend to be muted, not like hooting and hollering that is now standard for every Marvel film. So believe you me when I say the audience fucking gasped at this shit opening night and again in my three subsequent uh, theater viewings of this film. The last viewing was in the summer of 2021, so it still has that effect on people. In a single act of getting on a horse, it adds a lot of wonder and mystery to the elves. You get a taste of it with Legolas walking on snow or up the chain with the cave troll earlier, but I think this is the perfect crystallization of the elves being not like us. I do like the Oliphant scene in Return of the King too, but I feel that's just more goofy and wink-wink, whereas this is kind of played completely in earnest. And two, I think there's something to film showing you something you've never seen before, something that strains credulity and imagination, if not for the fact that you just saw it, the impossible made possible. Using conventional physics and assuming that this horse is going around 10 miles per hour, the sheer force of grabbing the horse would probably break a human's arm, and a normal person would theoretically just hop up on the same side they are on, not swing in front of the galloping hooves and going (laughs) under the horse's neck. Even if it was physically possible, it just wouldn't be the safest thing to do. Which gets me into how they actually did this moment, which wasn't part of the plan. The scene was created in post, as the original scene had just had Legolas hopping on Gimli's horse normally, but Bloom broke his rib in the process and they couldn't get get the shot they needed. This is yet another instance of the imperfection of filmmaking benefiting the final product. Yep. Uh, And it's also another instance of the value of being confident in your choices. In the behind the scenes reels, uh, appropriately called the appendices, uh, the VFX crew straight up happily admit that there's no fucking way that this move would have worked in real life um, because like this is like dead ass clipping through the ground. But who cares? Who cares? It looks fab. 
And the VFX team and the creative team behind them don't feel the need to walk it back or act coy or insecure about it. So nobody's stupid bitching about this ever sticks. And that's exactly the right approach. Yeah, when they came to edit the final product, the team realized they never got that shot of Bloom getting on the horse. So they had to figure something out to fill in uh, the few seconds they had between shots of the Rohirrim approaching behind him. That's where Weta Digital comes in, using what is called a quote-unquote digital double, which is a virtual recreation of a real human actor. While this technology is commonplace now, it was very much in its early and experimental stage in 2002. They did use digital doubles in Fellowship of the Ring, namely that overhead shot of the Fellowship running across the bridge of Khazad-dûm. In this instance, Weta wasn't just doing a digital copy of the character, they had to blend it with footage of actual Legolas standing there before, beforehand waiting for the horse and then transition into his digital copy without any cuts or breaks. They ended up creating over 30 different animations of Legolas, horsing himself from all angles and with all sorts of saddling methods, I guess, but they settled on the one we see here. They basically had to do a full digital recreation of what they had filmed, of the landscape and hills and of the horses and of Gimli on the horse, and then use the 3D model to incorporate the Legolas digital double and match it to the exact dimensions and angle of the shot. This technique is called match moving. The CGI also had to be refined so that it matched the lighting of the original scene and the hair and fabric movements on Legolas in the live action element. Alright, so that's Legolas's big moment, but what about the rest? At the most basic level, in the various medieval war and swords and sandal movies of the time, we had never really seen what a cavalry versus cavalry rush would look like, two lines of mounted soldiers crashing into each other. So in another way, this was something else new to behold. This scene is also pretty solid for Theoden's character, and before Emily murders me, I will <laughs> be very clear that I mean Theoden for this film and not the Theoden of the books. <laughs> First off, you see him actually leading his men into battle, which is not something that I was used to kings doing during movies. In Braveheart, for example, Edward the Longshanks would remain well behind the front lines, perusing the action safely from a distance. Immediately, my brain is thinking, oh, Theoden's not a sedentary king who just has other men go off and die for him. He goes off and dies himself. Good job. Of course, I think about <laughs> A Song of Ice and Fire and Thrones a lot. So how the kings act in battle tell us a lot about who they are. Rob Stark, for example, often led the vanguard and fought where the fighting was thickest, while Joffrey Baratheon stayed be safely behind castle walls and even fled those walls at the slightest hint of danger. Theoden not only leads the charge, but you see that he is skilled in the martial arts as well. We see him battling one warg rider and defeating them, but then instantly turning around and killing a different warg. A half second late, and Theoden would have been wolf food, but he has good battlefield awareness. After watching him loaf around as Sauron's puppet and then be reluctant to go to war, it is good to get a taste of this for Theoden, or else one might wonder why anyone would follow this king in the Battle of Helm's Deep, especially for a fairly martial culture like the Rohirrim. And again, Emily, don't murder me, but <laughs> I'm on board with how Theoden has Eowyn lead their people to the keep and away from the attack. It's frustrating to Aon and Aon fans alike, but I don't know if anything else really makes sense. The people need a leader, Aomer is gone, Theoden and Gamling are in battle, Hama is dead, sadly, rip Hama, justice for Hama. <laughs> and I think mostly it's just Bernard Hill's delivery of you must do it for me that sells me. It's a hint at a relationship this film doesn't really explore, and I, you know, kind of wish they did. 
And I know Emily kind of hates that there is a positive relationship in the first place. Please listen to the last six hours of podcasts we've released. (laughs) But the films as constructed, I think, work best unto themselves with this choice. And I do think it's an honorable task to guide people to safety and refuge and being the only one that can trust to do so. And I think it having Eowyn take up the sword here might defang a little bit of what she ends up doing in Return of the King. Yes, I agree. I 100% agree. Uh, like, I, I agree I agree with you on all of these points. I think, like, they, she in no universe should she have had her sword out here at all. I think that would have been insane. Uh, I also agree with you that it is, a, like, an honorable and good task. Where I disagree with you, uh, and I think that the movie didn't necessarily have to go the path that they did, is that they make it seem like Theoden himself thinks that it is a good, noble, and honorable thing to lead the people to uh, the Fortress of the Hornburg. And and that is, I think, kind of the problem for me, because it's disingenuous um, when Eowyn is left to take care of everything, because the men would never do it themselves. Um, and, and like and and it, it builds up this irony that I think Eowyn feels really keenly, which is that they've got the shield maiden tradition tradition in their in their culture. So ostensibly, women can fight just as much as men. Yet it is the woman who is always left behind to do the task, the allegedly honorable task of maintaining the keep and of protecting people defensively within the home and the hearth, while the men go out and get to go fight and take their swords. Up. And, and you know, if these men actually genuinely do think that it is just as honorable to stay home and protect the protect the people who have had to stay within the walls, why aren't they doing it? Why are they leaving it to the women? Um, and and the answer is because they don't actually think it's it's honorable or good. Uh, and it's a totally disingenuous thing that they're saying. And they're just saying it to kind of like be like, oh, sweetie, it's OK. Don't worry about it. We still think what you're doing is real and good work while they go off and do the things that they actually value and actually think is real and good work. And I wish the movie had played that up a bit more. Like, they basically kind of treat Theoden as, in a lot of ways, after he's rescued from this curse that Saruman has put on him, he's basically, like, morally irreproachable. Um, and, and or morally above reproach, I guess. Uh, and I think that's kind of the wrong call. I think they should have shown this, like, active conflict here between, like, Theoden wanting to go out and chase the adrenaline instead of doing the right thing, given that he's a fucking million years old, uh, and take his people inside the Hornburg and let Eowyn, who's young and allegedly good with a sword, do the fighting instead. Um, and they choose not to play that up, and I think that's kind of an own goal. Yeah, I, I don't think I would dispute anything that you just said there. I also like Miranda Otto's performance here. When Theoden denies her, she has this cold, steely (laughs) look. But when Theoden says, do it for me, she relents. And all caveats about the gender politics at play there. (laughs) (laughs) I I talked about Gimli enough already. But again, him not being a horseman and doing better with two feet planted on the ground is true to him as a character and the dwarves as a culture. It serves his character and the dwarvish corner of lore to have him fall from his horse, yet still acquit himself well in battle. You also start getting hints of the counting game between him and Legolas here when Gimli says one of the wolves counts as his. If you're going to have a running bit, might as well commit to it. (laughs) Also, I think just including the wargs is smart in and of itself. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, it's much like the cave troll in Moria. If you're going to do something fun, might as well pull something with high fantasy elements or that'll give the audience something new to look at. I think my defense is running a bit long now. But I guess I should speak about Aragorn's moment with Sharku and him plummeting off the cliff. I am less enthused with this portion, mostly because fake out deaths can be pretty hit or miss for me. (laughs) And there's a lot of them coming up, especially in Return of the King. But I still think it serves well enough for what the film is trying to accomplish. 
We are approaching the halfway mark of this movie, and a film that ends on generally positive vibes across the board. Victory at Helm's Deep and Isengard, and the attack on Esgiliath has been repelled and Frodo and Sam set free. So at this halfway point, the movie wants to coherently reflect the nadir of the narrative, all the plot threads at their lowest points. Isengard is about to be unleashed, Frodo and Sam have just been captured by some unknown men, and now in this plot thread, the future King of Men has seemingly fallen to his doom. This helps achieve an emotional coherency that will lead us into our little interlude with Galadriel and Elrond, where they reflect about how the darkness is gathering and things couldn't look worse for our heroes. And while I don't think this is very logically sound, I do think this helps build some of the connective tissue for later scenes and also sets up two of my absolute favorite shots. Aragorn initially arriving to the gorge that holds Helm's Deep is one of my favorite landscape shots that I'll jack off to when we get there, and of course Aragorn opening the double doors in the Great Hall. Aragorn spying the Uruk army on the way is that connective tissue and causality that blockbuster filmmaking is built on. Lastly, I just think the pacing of this film is served best with a little bit of adrenaline here. As much as it chaps some people, these films are firmly action-adventure films, even though there is a lot more to it and that label alone doesn't quite capture it. After Gandalf is found, there really isn't much quote-unquote action to speak of. We hold court in Edoras, Gollum talks to himself, Sam cooks, <laughs> Faramir is there, I guess. <laughs> There's a bit of lull in the story, and that lull isn't going to break until the Battle of Helm's Deep starts proper. So that's upwards of an hour of this film that is pretty much all dialogue and traveling. But I don't want to come off as a meathead here, which I think is the second time I'm saying that this episode. I like talking scenes. I love travel log chapters. I don't need something to blow up every 15 minutes. And as much as some might call it cowardly, you know, got to have an action scene so dude bros don't get bored, I think it's in fair contract with the audience for these blockbusters to provide some of that excitement and tension. And I, I just think I'm done. I'm not even going to try to wrap this up coherently. <laughs> That's fair. Um, yeah, like, I mean, okay, so substantively, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying, which is I know kind of boring given I need to be <laughs> playing on my, putting on my bad cop uh, outfit here. But like, I think the scene as a whole is kind of a cop out, speaking of cops. Uh, like, <laughs> I don't think there's really much merit in the criticism that like, oh, well, it's not in the books. If they'd done, for example, a scene with Mary and Pippin or with Thanathor and Faramir that wasn't in the books, I wouldn't bitch about it on those lines. I'd be thrilled. I think what I'm not down with is that it feels like a bit of a hackneyed attempt to pump up the Christ-like element to Aragorn, literally a resurrection scene, in a way that feels a bit, like, cheap. And it also, to me, doesn't really feel like it's playing to the film's strengths and certainly the director's strengths. Peter Jackson is a horror director, and I think horror directors have in their arsenal far more interesting ways to pump up the stakes without doing battle sequences. And I think it would have been very, very interesting to have seen some more of the tools from the horror director's toolbox brought out here to do something tense and a bit more in the spirit of the mythological narrative style of Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. I got two things to say first. I think I just, like everything else in Lord of the Rings, I just completely missed the Christ-like element to Aragorn <laughs> and that being a resurrection thing because both being an atheist, not being raised christian or catholic specifically and also not having read the books and knowing that it's you know drawing heavily from catholicism just like being completely removed from any religious elements is part of the reason i just didn't see that which would obviously color my opinion one way or another but i think you're like spot on with 
if Peter Jackson used his horror cred um, a little more effectively here, like how harrowing would it be to have like a nighttime scene of the yeah. caravan with like wargs picking off like the outriders and scouts and the people that are kind of like the back line, you know, trying to protect the caravan. And it's just shot like a horror scene and people are just disappearing off in the distance and you can just hear sounds of them being eaten or something. Yeah. I think that would be way up his style. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think... um David Lowry's The Great Night, which is, uh, fuck, a brilliant film. Um, I think this Mm -hmm. is like a really good example of kind of what I'm trying to get at, which is like, there are definitely action sequences. There's no doubt about that. But the action sequences are fairly sparse, all things considered. It's a very small movie. It never feels like it has a cast of hundreds. And Lowry uses his woodland setting like really fucking cleverly to get the audience's blood pumping because woods are spooky. We all know this. Um, and I think rather than doing this warg stuff, it would have been really, really interesting to show, like, for example, Grima navigating his way to our thing and using the kind of gothic horror of the landscape to help, help heighten the sheer terror of the war. Or even fuck the Rohan plot entirely, play up the heart of darkness element to the rangers of Athelion scenes. We'll get into this more in the Barmer and Aon character episode to come. But there's like an extremely canonically justifiable interpretation of Faramir as basically a fucking eldritch horror. Uh, And I really, really would have liked to have seen a horror director's take on David Wenham going full Marlon Brando in Apocalypse now. So like basically in summation, I don't disagree that the scene looks great and gets the blood pumping. But as with any adaptational choice, I feel compelled to ask, but why this road and not a different one? And also, why can't we have more of this spooky spooky? (laughs) Yeah, and I I really can't disagree. Like fundamentally when doing an adaptation, I'd prefer they take something like meaningful and do something with that, like especially good character work. This is something I I complain a lot about with Game of Thrones too, is like where they could have inserted this great scene that explains politics of say Dorn, they instead have two random Knights Guardsmen talking about what shit they ate like the other day. Um, It's like, if you're going to fill time, can't you do something that, you know, plays with the lore or the characters a little bit more? Lastly, our scenes end with us arriving at Helm's Deep, but we're going to skip talking about Helm's Deep for now. We have Aragorn's return and Theoden fortifying the Keep's defenses coming up soon, so laying down some geography and history of the castle there makes the most sense. So initially, we were going to make this a justice for Hama propagandizing hour. Uh, But instead, I think we've decided that we'll just let the passage speak for itself. And hopefully with the amount of groundwork we've laid in the hashtag justice for Hama campaign, you will get the immensity of this scene. So without further ado. When they had all drunk the king went down the hall to the doors. There, the guards awaited him, and the herald stood, and all the lords and chiefs were gathered together that remained in Edoras or dwelt nearby. Behold, I go forth, and it seems like to be my last riding. I have no child. Theodrid, my son, is slain. I name Eomer, my sister's son, to be my heir. If neither of us return, then choose a new lord as you will. But to someone I must now entrust my people that I leave behind to rule them in my place. Which of you will stay? No man spoke. Is there none whom you would name? In whom do my people trust? In the house of Earl, answered Hama. 
But Eomer I cannot spare, nor would he stay, and he is the last of that house. I said not Eomer, answered Hama, and he is not the last. There is Eowyn, daughter of Eomond, his sister. She is fearless and high-hearted. All love her. Let her be as lord to the Aerolingus while we are gone. It shall be so. Let the heralds announce to the folk that the Lady Eowyn will lead them. Then the king sat upon a seat before his doors, and Eowyn knelt before him and received from him a sword and a fair corslet. Farewell, sister-daughter. Dark is the hour, yet maybe we shall return to the Golden Hall. But in Dunharrow the people may long defend themselves, and if the battle go ill, thither will come all who escape. Speak not so, she answered. A year shall I endure for every day that passes until your return. But as she spoke, her eyes went to Aragorn, who stood nearby. The king shall come again, he said. Fear not. Not west, but east does our doom await us. The king now went down the stair with Gandalf beside him. The others followed. Aragorn looked back as they passed towards the gate. Alone, Eowyn stood before the doors of the house at the stair's head. The sword was set upright before her, and her hands were laid upon the hilt. She was clad now in mail and shone like silver in the sun. closes the book on this episode of my brother my captain my podcast our email is my brother my captain my podcast at gmail.com and my bro my cat my pod on twitter and instagram you can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro my cat my pod which goes towards this and also unlocks all sorts of benefits and goodies for you the listener i've been manu also known as manuclear bomb you can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Not A Cast Podcast. And I've been Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be throwing a Kong ball that will hopefully lead the warg that's dragging Aragorn off a massive cliff. Toasting a pint to our sound <laughs> editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.